it's a privilege again to be able to fill the pulpit. Can you hear me okay, Alec? Yeah? Good. Uh, we know that these are uh, special times that we have together to be able to study the Word of God together. And uh, I'm grateful to have an opportunity uh, to give our pastor a break as well to be refreshed in his own personal study and to free him to uh, invest in other areas of ministry, which I know will uh, bless our congregation. So um, let's open our time here with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time we have to study your word. I pray that you would enable and use me to be the vessel through which the truths from your word are proclaimed to this congregation and beyond. We believe in the power of your word and the work that your word will do through the Holy Spirit in the hearts who receive it. It's for your glory we pray. Amen. Open your copy of God's word to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we'll specifically be looking at verses 12 through 21, John's account of the triumphal entry. So this morning we will be looking primarily in John's account, but we'll be studying various passages from Scripture that inspired the naming and recognition of this particular Sunday morning, Palm Sunday. And most, if not all of you, are familiar with the story of the triumphal entry. Some of you may recall pictures or paintings, lessons from Sunday school classes depicting Jesus on a donkey surrounded by cheering people, waving palm branches, and lining the road with their outer garments. The observance of this Sunday as Palm Sunday calls us to remember the events of Christ's final week before he would die on the cross. And interestingly, and we will study this in more depth this morning, Christ's triumphal entry most likely took place on a Monday. So I'm sorry if that jars your uh, thinking about Palm Sunday. Uh, The week between the triumphal entry and Easter Sunday is often referred to as Passion Week. And passion in this context does not refer to Christ's passion or enthusiasm for something. Instead, the word passion from Passion Week is derived from the Greek verb pasko, which means to suffer or endure. And we know that Christ, at the end of this final week of his earthly life, would ultimately suffer and endure the cross. Now, as I'd mentioned, we're specifically going to look and study John's account of the triumphal entry from John chapter 12, but it's important for us to see and understand that the triumphal entry is actually recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, besides Christ's miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the triumphal entry is the only other event from his earthly public ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, each of the Gospel authors were inspired to include it in their respective accounts. None of them conspired together to include it all together. But no doubt the event was significant and meaningful to each of them individually, and hopefully its familiarity to us does not breed a superficial understanding or interest in the event alone. God providentially included it in all four gospel accounts for a reason. And its inclusion in all four gospels must mean that it is an important event we should recognize and understand. Not only was the triumphal entry described and narrated in all four gospels, but Christ's final week his death, his resurrection, and the post-resurrection events take up just over one-third of all of the Gospels combined. In other words, the Gospels devote a tremendous amount of time and content to the final events in the earthly life of Christ, beginning with the triumphal entry. Now, while we will look at John's account specifically, I think it's valuable for us to hear the chronological account of the triumphal entry put together uh, by Pastor John MacArthur in his book, One Perfect Life. And if you guys don't have a copy of this book, 
It's right here. I would encourage you guys to get it. It's, it's a book that takes all four Gospels and essentially combines them into a single chronological biographical account of the life of Christ. And uh, I'll start off our time here by reading from uh, this chronological account. It says, The next day Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, on which no one has sat. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there, the owners, said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him, just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. They brought the donkey and the colt to Jesus, laid their clothes on them, and they set Jesus on the colt. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Excuse me. Fear not, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And a very great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples who went before and those who followed began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these keep silent, the stones would immediately cry. Now, again, that's, that's the com combination of the four accounts of the Gospels of the triumphal entry read chronologically. Um, this morning, as, as we've already said, we'll look specifically at John's account. And in your bulletins, you all have a basic outline of what we're going to go through as we walk through this passage. Uh, this morning, we're going to see from John's account that there that we're participating in observing the triumphal entry. We're going to see the first group, which I've termed the crowds. The second group is Christ's confidants. The third group I've called the conspirators. And from there, we're going to look at three elements of the triumphal entry, starting with the grandeur, and then the invitation, and then the tragedy of the triumphal entry. And we'll go through each of those subpoints that you guys see in your outlines in sequence. But before we get into our text this morning, let's, let's set the scene. How did Christ come? to the triumphal entry. During his earthly, earthly ministry, earthly public ministry, Jesus traveled, as we know, between the areas of Judea and Galilee. He went as far north as Caesarea Philippi, and he went eastward of the Jordan River into the area known as Perea, and his work spanned a 175-mile radius from his birthplace and during his earthly public ministry up to this point, he had already observed two Passovers before coming to the triumphal entry, which would usher in his third and final Passover before his death. During his first two Passovers, the first one we see in account 
Jesus was in Jerusalem at that time. And you may recall from that Passover that he cleansed the temple of the money changers. And his second Passover, which was celebrated up, or I should say observed up in uh, around Galilee, he fed the 5,000. And so he did remarkable things and spoke to his being God, and he followed them boldly by proclaiming and what he had come to do on the first two Passovers that he observed. Uh, we find after John 6, after John 6 and his, if you will, his final tour through the land of Galilee in ministry, he then progressively made his way down south, back into Judea, and spent the majority of the remaining time in and Jerusalem. And during these times between John 6 up till John 12, we see that Jesus taught, performed miracles. And if we come to John 11, we see the events of the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus, which is two miles east of Jerusalem. And after raising Lazarus, Jesus then went to the area known as Ephraim, north and east of Jerusalem. And then in John 12, at the beginning, we see that Jesus returns back to Bethany, and he communes with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at their home before coming into Jerusalem, uh, which we will look at today. I think these events early in chapter 12 here, his return to Bethany to commune with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is a wonderful, beautiful physical illustration of the, the saving work of Jesus in the lives of believers. Jesus loved Lazarus, and he raised his body from the dead, and then he fellowshiped and communed with him in his home. The triumphal entry, it's important for us to recognize, was not a winding down of of Christ's earthly ministry, but it was quite the opposite. For the three years prior, Jesus had incredibly intentional and consistent ministry. His miracles demonstrated his power over demons, physical ailments and sickness, power over nature and the earth. He taught boldly about the kingdom of God, the need for repentance of sin, righteous living, genuine faith, and obedience. He confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and their superficial piety and false religiosity. His teaching and miracles extended to both the Jews and the Gentiles. In no way was Christ winding down when he came to Jerusalem and entered the city for his final Passover. Now, let's turn to our text now, John 12, verse 12. Walk through the text together, and as we do so, we're going to be introduced to the three different groups of people that were present and participating in the triumphal entry. Starting in verse 12, it says, On the next day, this will be Monday, for those of you who may be counting days, this is Monday, and the reason that it was Monday is if we go back to verse 1, chapter 12, it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany. And in that year that he died, Passover served on the And counting six days back, it would mean that he entered Mary, Martha, and Lazarus on Saturday. And on Sunday, we read earlier in John 12, and specifically in verse 9 of chapter 12 here, it says, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came to Bethany, that is. And so Saturday, Christ was in Bethany, fellowshipping with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Sunday, this large crowd of Jews came. And therefore, on uh, verse 12 here, on the next day would mean that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Monday. And that, that is of special importance, as we will see. Going on in verse 12, it says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And we'll just pause there. And here we're introduced to the first group, the large crowd who had come to the feast. And this is a crowd comprised of those who came to Jerusalem early for preparations for Passover or were already living in Jerusalem. 
And in addition to this crowd, there was a large crowd of Jews that accompanied him from Bethany, as we saw from verse 9. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there in Bethany, and they came to Bethany first. So these people that we encounter here are Jews that came to Bethany, as well as were already in Jerusalem at the time preparing for Passover, and they came out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus. This group of Jews were the common Jewish public. These people had heard Jesus teach. They saw his miracles, and they followed him around. The recipients of the food that he created. And they couldn't help but notice his authority in teaching. And they confessed even faith in Jesus. And it says that for some of these people, their sins were forgiven. But in general, these people were attracted to Jesus and they followed him around because of his miracles and his supernatural power. This crowd uh, was, as I'd mentioned, filled with people who were coming to Jerusalem or already residing in Jerusalem for Passover. And it's interesting, uh, if we look in Matthew's account, as many as these people recognized Jesus, there were some who didn't. Uh, apparently know who Jesus was. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 21, it says, When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? So, as we look at this crowd of people, this crowd of Jews, we see that these are Jewish people who had followed Christ around the last three years, as well as some Jewish people who apparently did not know who he was as well. And we know that one thing in common about the Jewish population at that time was that they were living under Roman oppression, socially and politically and religiously. They were living under spiritual oppression from their own religious teachers and leaders. And it was a terrible time for and pagan worship. And for the Jewish people, promises couldn't have seemed further from their present condition. And the Jews longed for a Messiah to save them from their present state. To the Jews, the Messiah was supposed to free them from this Roman bondage, to suffering, to bring a sort of prosperity gospel-like state for them. They desired health and wealth and instant happiness. And yet, despite all of Jesus' miracles, which demonstrated that he could have provided all of these things, John MacArthur says, sin was still rampant. Injustice was still the rule. Political and religious corruption were the norm. And the world was essentially the same as it had been for thousands of years, except for a few, few cleansed lives and healed bodies. No visible kingdom was in sight, and no radical changes could be seen. And so even though the common Jewish population lost the Messiah, uh, we know that ultimately that was not what Jesus came to provide them in, in the sense of, of an earthly saving. Introduced to one more part of this general crowd, if we jump down to verses 20 and 21, it says there, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now these Greeks or Gentiles or non-Jews, these were probably proselytes to Judaism. And they were going up to worship, it says. They were going up to Jerusalem to worship for the feast. And it says in verse 21, Then they came to Philip the disciple who was from Bethsaida of Galilee and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so in addition to the common Jewish crowd, we see that there were also some Gentiles who had come to Jerusalem. And these Gentiles were believers in the God of the Jews, they came to worship God, and we see that they wished to see Jesus. Now, just how big was this crowd in and around Jerusalem around the time of Jesus' triumphal entry? We know that people would come from all over the region to Jerusalem to observe Passover. At that time, would have swelled sixfold. The Jewish Pharisee and historian Josephus wrote about Passover and how the priests would slaughter all the Passover lambs that were selected by all who were observing Passover in the city. And he wrote, quote, On this day, 
They slay their sacrifices from the ninth hour until the eleventh, with a company of not less than ten belonging to every sacrifice, for it is not lawful for them to have the feast singly by themselves, and many of us are twenty in a company. These priests found the number of the sacrifices was, get this, 256,500 which, if we assume no more than 10 feasted together, amounts to 2,700,200 persons. So, sort of repeating what Josephus said, in other words, he said at that time, the group of priests at Temple Mount would have to sacrifice all of the Passover lambs that were brought to them, the people, the families, the households, would bring their selected Passover lambs to the priests, and the priests would slaughter them over a two-year period. These Passover lambs were to be eaten. As we go back to Exodus 12, uh, we see that the the Passover lambs were to be selected and then eaten by households by groups and no more than 20. And so if you do the math... Josephus was saying that these priests would slaughter over a quarter of a million lambs within two hours. And that's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. If you think about at that time, they would slaughter the lambs, the blood would be flowing from the side of the temple, and literally you would have this river of blood from the lambs flowing down the side of the temple into the Kidron Valley. And so you had 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered there eight of those lambs, then that would mean that there were time. And so you ask, how big was this crowd? There were about 2.7 million people there available to come and see Jesus at this time. Now, what does it say that this crowd was doing? Let's get back to our text here. It says in verse 13 that this Jewish crowd and these Gentiles, they, in verse 13, they took the of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so here in verse 13, it says the Jews took the branches of the palm trees. Palm trees, as we uh, learn, were used in celebrations. They were commonly used in celebrations at that time. They were commonly used in processionals, in welcoming royalty and triumphant warriors. From the Old Testament, 23, we see that palm branches were used for celebration and rejoicing during the Feast of Booths. In Revelation 7, 9, that there was waving of palm branches for the great He says, palm trees have ever been an emblem of victory and triumph in Scripture. And so these Jews and these Gentiles were cutting branches and waving them and laying them down on the ground. And palm branches, the Jews went out to meet Jesus. Thirteen, The crowds from Bethany who followed him and the crowds coming from Jerusalem coming towards him, they converged along this little two-mile stretch between Bethany and Jerusalem, waving these palm branches. And they began to shout, as it says here, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna comes from the Hebrew word that means give salvation now. It literally means save us now. And to bless, to bless means to give favor. And so this crowd, these people were on the road offering their highest favor or praise to Jesus. Now Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that was a direct recitation from Psalm 118, and specifically Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And Psalm 118 is the last of six psalms, Psalm 113, sorry, Psalms 113 through 118, six chapters in the book of Psalms that comprise what is called the Hallel. And this was regularly and frequently recited by the Jews at feasts, as well as regularly during Passover. And Psalm 118 in particularly is widely considered to be messianic. And the reciting of Psalm 118 reflected the longing and expectation of the Jews for the coming Messiah. 
Now, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, we see that in addition to the palm branches, the people were spreading their coats on the road. We can't dismiss that from Luke 19, verse 36. And this also shouldn't be viewed as necessarily uncommon. In 2 Kings chapter 9, for example, chapter 9, verse 13, we see the scene of the prophet Elisha telling a servant to tell Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, that God had chosen him as king over the Israelites. And in verse 13 of 2 Kings chapter 9, it says that the people at the news of hearing that Jehu was their new king, it says, they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So in other words, the laying down of garments on the ground was not foreign to the Jews who were doing it at the time of the triumphal entry. This was a sign of respect and reverence to royalty, if you will, not wanting royal feet to touch the dirty ground. Now, as we continue on in John 12 here, we'll come into verse 14 and verse 15, and here we're introduced to the second group of people. The first group we labeled as the crowds, and the second group here, are Christ's confidants, and specifically Christ's confidants were Jesus' disciples. And for verse 14 here, it says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, we don't specifically see the disciples here in verses 14 and 15, but we can understand what happened in verse 14 and 15 based on what the disciples did, and we would have to look to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account to see exactly what happened uh, in terms of Jesus coming in on this young donkey. In Luke's account, we see that Jesus commands two of his disciples to go into the neighboring village next to Bethany called Bethphage, where they would find this donkey cult and its mother tied in the street. And this would have been a very odd sight to anybody to walk into a town and see donkeys tied on the street side. Donkeys were ordinarily tied away from the street, not from outward view. So for them to come into this small town of Bethphage and see these two donkeys tied there would have been a very odd sight. Uh, Mark and Luke note that the cult was one that no one yet has ever sat, meaning this cult, this young donkey, had never been used for service. Nobody had sat on it before, and that has very special relevance, as we'll see shortly. Furthermore, Jesus told his disciples to untie the donkey cult and its mother, both of the animals, and the reason for that was that the mother was needed to help guide the young donkey to come along. Even though Jesus sat on the young donkey, the mother had to come with it. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone asked why they were untying them, they should note, uh, they should tell those people the Lord has need of them, and immediately they would oblige, and that was exactly what had happened. In fact, we see that the owners, the very owners of the donkey, saw the disciples untying their donkeys, and they came out and said, what are you doing? Why are you untying the donkeys? And just as Jesus had said, uh, the Lord has need of them, and immediately the owners of the donkeys let the disciples take them. Now, it's also important for us to see that kings riding on donkeys was not unheard of as well, okay? Waving of palm branches, laying garments on the ground, kings riding on donkeys, that was nothing uncommon at that time uh, from the perspective of the Jewish people. For example, they probably recalled from 1 Kings chapter 1, Verse 32, King David called for his son Solomon to be brought in, riding on his mule, to be anointed as the new king over Israel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, King David asks the servant Ziba, if we turn to there, I want to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 16. David asks Ziba, why have you brought these? Referring to what Ziba brought, Ziba brought two donkeys, as well as bread and raisins and fruits and wine, to which Ziba replied to King David, he said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. So we see that royalty riding on donkeys was not unheard of. However, in Jesus' specific case here, we see that it had more significance than just merely a king coming in on a donkey. 
Uh, if we look in verse 15, uh, verse 15 specifically says that Jesus came in in this manner to fulfill what was written in uh, Old Testament prophecy, and specifically it refers to Zechariah 9.9. And if we want to turn back together to Zechariah 9.9, we can read that together here. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see that more than just simply the symbolism of a king coming in on a donkey, which would not, again, was not to the Jews was not unheard of, but Christ specifically chose to do this so that he could fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. Uh, again, a proclamation of who he was and what he had intended to come and do. Now in verse 16 here it says that the second group here, Christ's disciples, uh, not only did they find the mode of transportation, but they also came into the triumphal entry together with Jesus. And it says in verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So this is an important thing for us to see is that even though the disciples were participating in the triumphal entry, they really didn't understand the point of it at first. It says that they did not understand, and tragically their misunderstanding uh, um, indicated that they didn't understand at the time why Christ had come, why Christ was entering Jerusalem, and furthermore, what was going to happen to their Lord uh, as he died on the cross. However, John writes that the disciples would eventually receive correct understanding after Christ's glorification, and this was specifically referring then to his resurrection and then his imparting of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, if we go on, we come back to the Jewish crowd, and it says, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. And so we see here the people, these Jewish people who had come from Bethany and come out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus, they continued to testify about him. And specifically, what were they testifying about? They weren't testifying about Jesus as Lord. They were testifying about his miracles, how he raised Lazarus. And so the crowd here was not interested in a spiritual leader or a spiritual Lord and Savior. They were, they were more concerned about a supernatural man who performed supernatural miracles. In verse 18, it says, the crowd went to meet him. So you have crowds proclaiming what Jesus did, and you have crowds coming out because they heard about what Jesus did. And all these people together were there participating in this triumphal entry, sort of this parade of sorts, waving arms, laying down their garments, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And finally, in verse 19, we're introduced to the third group of people. Third group of people here. It's the conspirators, the Pharisees. And it says in verse 19 So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So these Pharisees here are talking sort of angrily to one another, and they're enraged because Jesus is coming in in this parade with the general Jewish public praising him, and this was infuriating to them. On multiple occasions, we see in the Gospels, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had wanted to seize Jesus, had wanted to put him to death, because they saw him as a threat. They did not want to lose their status or their popularity among the Jews, and we see multiple times that they had uh, hate in their hearts toward Jesus. Now, 
Unfortunately, I know that our time is short, and I've been somewhat long-winded just with this first point here. Uh, let me just transition now to three other elements that we see here in the triumphal entry. And the first thing that I want us to look at is the grandeur of the triumphal entry. So we've gone through here and introduced ourselves to the three groups of people that were present at the time of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem here, parading in in his final week before he would go to the cross. And the three things that I want us to look at here about this triumphal entry, number one, are the grandeur of the triumphal entry. And why is it the grandeur? What is so grand about this? Well, Jesus at the triumphal entry really presents himself in four ways. Number one, he presents himself as supreme. Number two, he presents himself as sovereign. And number three, he presents himself as the servant. And finally, he presents himself as the savior. And we'll try and go through each of these relatively quickly. First of all, Christ presents himself as supreme. And what do I mean by that? It means that God is supreme. Jesus is supreme. He's omniscient. He's above all things. He's before all things. He's over all things. Um, you know, the disciples and the Jewish crowd here saw Jesus as their earthly and physical king. But we know that Jesus had come to be more than just an earthly king. He was coming to be a spiritual king. And we see that after he proceeds and enters Jerusalem, he doesn't go to a palace. He went to the temple. He went to the place of worship to him, the place where he had taught from, the place that he had cleansed, the temple that was erected for the people to come and worship God. Charles Spurgeon writes about Christ coming into Jerusalem. He rides to his capital. The streets of Jerusalem, the royal city, are open to him. Like a king, he ascends to his palace. He was a spiritual king, and therefore he went not to the palace temporal, but to the palace spiritual. He rides to the temple and furthermore, in referencing back to the animal that Jesus had rode in on, we see that it was a donkey that had never been used for services. And John MacArthur makes this uh, insight. He says that animals that had never been ridden on were regarded as especially suited for holy purposes. And we see examples of this, for example, in Numbers 19, in Deuteronomy 21, and in 1 Samuel 6, we see that animals specifically mentioned in these passages, these are animals that had never been used for services, never had carried a yoke. Uh, and in each of these instances, they were used for spiritual or holy purposes. And here, Jesus riding in on a young donkey that had never carried a load was symbolic of him coming in to Jerusalem, not as an earthly king, but as a holy spiritual king. Secondly, we see in the grandeur of the triumphal entry that Jesus is sovereign, and we see this in multiple ways. Obviously, we can see the sovereignty of Christ and how this young donkey was sovereignly placed uh, in Bethphage and how Christ had perfectly laid out how his disciples would find and get this donkey. It's important for us to also recognize that the timing in which Jesus came into Jerusalem here was all part of God's sovereign plan. You see that Jesus specifically planned to come into Jerusalem on Monday. And why is that? Well, we see from the Old Testament instructions for how the Jews were to observe Passover. Passover was supposed to be observed on the 14th of Nisan, in the month of Nisan. And in the year A.D. 33, when Jesus was killed, Passover fell on a Thursday, okay? So Passover was on the 14th. The selection of the Passover lambs for every household was supposed to occur on the 10th of Nisan. And if we count backwards, then that would be Monday of Passion Week. And that was obviously sovereignly planned by our Lord. Our Lord intended to come into Jerusalem on the day 
that the Jews would be selecting their Passover lamb. And that was symbolic. Christ came in to demonstrate to all that he came in as their Passover lamb. So it was sovereignly done that way, according to Jewish law, according to Jewish custom, all sovereignly positioned so that Christ would come in on this day. And finally, we see Jesus' sovereignty here in that he was constantly chased, constantly, uh, uh, there were constant attempts to stone him, to seize him, and each time he had gone away, right? He sovereignly moved away from those times. Why? Because he says his time had not come. And finally, when it was Jesus' time, he would present himself in the most public of ways among all of the people. And that was sovereignly done by God, um, for this time, for this very purpose. So we see Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sovereign. Thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus came in, in this manner in the triumphal entry, to present himself as the servant. We see here that Jesus came in on the cult of a donkey, certainly not a very intimidating animal, and donkeys at the time were considered a symbol of humility, especially... A baby donkey would have been considered the humblest of animals. If we go back to Zechariah 9.9, it also says that the king, the coming king, would enter humble. And so Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah had to mean that he would come into Jerusalem in humility. And this was Jesus' intention all along. He came into Jerusalem on a borrowed baby donkey, with clothing used as a saddle. There was no big announcement that he was coming as a king. He rested at his friend's home the day prior to coming. He intended to come as a servant. And while the crowd's perspective was that they were ushering in royalty, Jesus' primary intention was to come in as a servant. Finally, Jesus demonstrates that he is the Savior. So he is supreme, he's sovereign, he's the servant, and he's the Savior. Again, in fulfillment to Zechariah's prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, it says that the king would come with what? With salvation. Jesus came with salvation. It says specifically in Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. The ESV translation says that he is righteous in having salvation. So Jesus came as the just and righteous spiritual king, humbling himself and coming as the one bringing salvation. And so here we see the grandeur of the triumphal entry marked as Jesus as the supreme king, the sovereign one, yet humble bringing spiritual salvation. And this brings us to the second point. The grandeur of the triumphal entry is tied to the invitation of the triumphal entry. And here we see three elements of the invitation of Jesus at the time of his triumphal entry. We see that Jesus invites the people to, number one, recall who Jesus claimed to be, number two, to repent of sin, And number three, to resolve, resolve to follow him and seek the kingdom of God. First, we'll look at Jesus' invitation to recall. And why do we see this as his invitation here in the triumphal entry? Well, Jesus came in and publicly showed himself as a way to encourage all who would witness him to remember everything that he said he was and everything that he had done. It says back early in Luke 4, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus entered the synagogue at Nazareth and read from the prophet Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And guess what? That's what he did. Right, In his presentation, 
during the triumphal entry was an invitation for all of the people there witnessing this to recall this. They had followed Jesus. They had seen what Jesus had done. And he called them now to recall who he said he was and what he came to do. We know that Jesus did many mighty works. He was master over nature. He created food. He healed physical ailments. He cured leprosy. He gave sight. He relieved bleeding disorders. He cured infections. He enabled the lame to walk. He raised the dead. All of these miracles pointed to his deity and validated who he said he was as the Son of God. Tom Pennington says, The primary purpose of Jesus' miracles was to confirm his credentials as God's final and ultimate messenger who spoke infallibly for God. And so Jesus came here and presented himself at the triumphal entry to invite the people to recall who he was and what he had come out to do. Number two, he invited all in light of recalling who Jesus is and what he has done, he invited them to repent. The necessary response to Jesus' invitation when you are faced with seeing the person of Christ, it reveals the stark and contrasting difference between man and God, both in character and conduct. In, In short, it reveals one's sinful depravity. And Jesus, therefore, invited the people, invited all who were there to repent of sin. And this had always been Jesus' outward message as well throughout his earthly ministry. Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 11, verse 18 through 20, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And from there, Jesus went on to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, and he condemned them. Why? Because, it says, they did not repent. So we see that upon recognizing and seeing the person of Christ, the necessary response is repentance. And finally, Jesus' invitation was to resolve to follow him. Jesus' invitation and his promises were never temporal. They were always eternal. You can write some of these passages down in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You see here, Jesus promised eternal standing and stability. In Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promised spiritual, eternal rest and peace. John 8, 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. His promise was for eternal, spiritual freedom, not earthly freedom. John eleven thirteen. during his interactions with the woman at the well, he promised water that would, uh, for those that drink of the water that he gives, that they will never be thirsty again. He promised eternal satisfaction. But he also promised to all who would choose to follow him that obedience was costly and require sacrifice. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says to the crowd, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And in Matthew 10, 38, he says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The cross here symbolizing suffering as Christ himself would suffer on the cross. And so Jesus here invites the people witnessing the triumphal entry to recall who he is and what he has done, to repent of sin, and to resolve, understanding the cost of obedience 
to Christ, but resolve to follow him. The third point here, and we'll just spend a few minutes as we uh, close our time. Unfortunately, we see that from all of the grandeur and from this invitation that Christ brought at the time of the triumphal entry, that sadly, it was tragically received. Now, some of you might be saying, I'm, I'm reading into the triumphal entry a bit, you know, this, this seems rather subtle, what you're saying in terms of Jesus' invitation, and it would, would have required the, the onlookers at the time to really look past all of the grandeur to see what we're seeing. And I, I want to say, actually, that it was not that subtle, okay? I want to say it wasn't that subtle. Listen here in John 8. The very same Jewish population that would be here at the triumphal entry, this is what it says in John 8, just a few chapters back from the triumphal entry itself here. This is what Jesus says, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that I, that I told you, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. That doesn't sound subtle, right? John chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And what? You do not believe. There was nothing subtle here. Jesus had constantly and consistently made these proclamations, invited his people, these these onlookers, to recall who he is, to repent of sin, to resolve to follow him. And tragically, we can see that in each of these three groups, each group rejected or missed his invitation. And for the crowds, for example, we see that they had mistaken expectations. The crowds had expected an earthly king, and it became quickly apparent following the triumphal entry that Jesus was not intending to bring an earthly kingdom but a spiritual one, and that resulted in the crowds turning on him. In fact, it says that in Mark 15, the chief priest, incited the crowd to turn on Jesus. His own disciples missed the grandeur and the invitation of the triumphal entry because of misunderstanding. I want to spend a couple minutes here focusing on these disciples. These disciples were a privileged group of people, as we know. They were sovereignly handpicked by Christ. They had a very special relationship with Jesus and were closer to Jesus anybody else. In fact, Jesus even gave them some of the supernatural powers. Uh, It says in Matthew 10, for example, that the disciples were given authority by Jesus, Jesus over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Some of the disciples even witnessed his transfiguration. And in Matthew 16, the disciples proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. And in fact, taking it one step further, Jesus himself on multiple occasions told his disciples what would happen to him in terms of him suffering, going to the cross, dying, and then being raised after three days. And despite all of these things, we see tragically how the disciples responded at the events that would happen with his death, right? We see that Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him. The disciples all scattered when Jesus was arrested, right? And even after his death, we sadly see that the disciples, many of them, returned to their former lives, their former occupations as fishermen, as we saw in John 21. They had seemingly forgotten everything that Jesus had told them and taught to them and revealed to them and everything that they had experienced, and yet... It was after his resurrection, he came back and he rebuked them for their doubt and unbelief. So we see the crowd turning on Jesus. They had mistaken expectations. The disciples missed 
the point of the triumphal entry as well as his death on the cross because of a lack of understanding or misunderstanding. And finally, the priests tragically missed the grandeur and the invitation of the triumphal entry because of their outright malintent. And that's not hard for us to see. They were filled with malintent towards Jesus. They had wanted to see him arrested and seized and to kill him on multiple occasions. And it would have seemed that at the time of his death that they had gotten their way. And yet Jesus knew that this was how it would all go down. This is how it would all go down. In fact, in Luke's account, it says that after he entered Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, he went to the temple. It says that he saw the city and what? He wept. He wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. So we see the grandeur. We see the invitation and we see the tragedy. But thankfully, we know that this is not how Jesus would leave these three groups. And it is through the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord and the imparting of the Holy Spirit that we actually see change in all of these three groups. For his disciples, we know that after the resurrection... He would restore his disciples and he would commission his disciples to be his apostles. And we know in Acts 2, for example, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit's empowering, here in John 12, it says that they would have and correct understanding of the events of Christ's life. And from that, we see that these apostles would then go out and proclaim the gospel and establish the church. How about the crowd, the tragedy of the crowd who had rejected Christ because he was not an earthly king? We see that many at the time of Jesus' crucifixion actually were sorrowful of what happened. And many in these crowds would also be present on the day of Pentecost. And I just want to turn your attention to Acts 2. In Acts 2, verse 5, it says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem. Again, these are the same people who probably participated in the triumphal entry, who then witnessed Jesus' death. And they saw the events of Pentecost. They saw the Holy Spirit's filling. And then we see in Acts 2, after Peter's preaching of the gospel to them, that in verses 37 and 38, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the same invitation that Jesus had just made at the triumphal entry, right? And we see that many of them repented and gave their lives to to Christ, right? How about the Gentiles? We read about these Gentiles, and we know that the Gentiles here uh, would also receive the gospel, and many would be saved. For example, I'll give you a couple of examples here. We read of a man named Simon of Cyrene. You guys might remember that from the account of Jesus' crucifixion, the man who was picked from the crowd to help hold Jesus' cross And we know that Simon of Cyrene, he was a Cyrenian Jew who resided in northern Africa. And after the events of Jesus' crucifixion, he brought the gospel truth back to Cyrene. And it says that he had two sons, Rufus and and Alexander. This is from Mark's account. Uh, Speaking of Simon of Cyrene, he he was the father of Rufus and Alexander, And uh, I hope that you'll be encouraged here. If if we fast forward to the book of Romans, in Romans 16, it speaks of Rufus as being a prominent person in the church in Rome. And so what we can deduce from this is that Simon brought the gospel back to Cyrene, and his family was instrumental then in going to Rome and establishing the church in Rome. 
We also see back in Acts 2 that it wasn't just Jews who were present at Pentecost. In Acts 2, verses 9 and 10, we see, we can, we can turn there, you can turn there if you want. Uh, it says that there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, non-Jews. And so some of these were likely the same people that had come to Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' triumphal entry. And we see that these same people in this crowd received the gospel, preached, repented, and were baptized and became part of the early church. And we see in Acts 17 and in Romans 1, we see the great apostle Paul preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, specifically preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Greece. And so we saw that in our passage from John 12 here, these Greek proselytes, this gospel was then preached to the Greeks, and many uh, subsequently repented and believed. And then finally, I want to encourage us by looking to the tragic story of the religious leaders who were intent on seeing Jesus put to death. We see already that Christ's work, the work of the Holy Spirit, was present even at the time of his death. We see from John 19, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph was one of the Sadducees, a high-profile religious sect. And Nicodemus, the Pharisee, these two men in John 19, after Jesus died, they approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And so these people risked their own reputation and standing as religious leaders among the Jews. Why? Because they believed in who Jesus was, and they wanted to ensure that Jesus was buried appropriately. But it doesn't just end there. Turn with me to Acts 6, the book of Acts 6, and we'll we'll end uh, after this. In Acts 6, So we continue to see in the book of Acts here in chapter 6 the establishment and the growth of the early church. And it says that in Acts 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And this is the encouraging thing here. It says, And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. How wonderful to see the power of the gospel bringing about eventually the right response to Christ's invitation at the triumphal entry. And notice here that there was nothing that these individuals did in each of these respective groups that brought about this change. It was all the work of Christ on the cross, through his resurrection, and through the power of of the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to recognize that these three groups of people present at the triumphal entry are also present today. Perhaps there are some here who profess to be Christians, but there are things that you have heard or experienced that have brought about confusion and doubt. As believers, Christ has given us the treasure of his word and the through his word to bring true understanding. And it is on his word that through the Holy Spirit that our faith grows and is deeply rooted in his truths and promises. Maybe you've been around the church and you've heard about Jesus. And maybe you might have even claimed to believe in him. But over time, maybe you've been disillusioned in what you've experienced. Perhaps you were hoping to get something else out of being in church. Perhaps you wanted more from God, and because of your mistaken expectations, you have become disappointed. And Jesus invites invites you to lay down your mistaken expectations, to embrace what he's offered as found in his word, to recognize the cost of obedience to him, and to resolve to follow him wholeheartedly. And finally, maybe you have been rejecting Jesus up until today. And his invitation to you is the same. Will you 
humbly repent of your sin and submit to his lordship? And will you choose to obey him, take up your cross, and follow him? There's one final group present today that was not present full entry. And that is the redeemed body of Christ that is his church. And what does the triumphal entry have to say to us as Christ's church? The triumphal entry bids us to remember our role in proclaiming the gospel and being the means through which Christ is seen through us. Corey Tenboom said, If I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in this world, I will give him all the praise and all the glory. And pastor teacher Steve Lawson similarly says, the only thing good about our lives is the one who rides upon our heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. And lest any of us think any praise or any glory is going to us, it is all going to the one who rides upon our soul by his grace. Let us be faithful donkeys. Let's close in prayer. The words from the song penned by Andrew Peterson says, Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. Does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us, he does. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Lord, we are amazed that you, the supreme King and sovereign God, humbled yourself in coming as the humble servant and as the ultimate Passover lamb. We ask for your spirit to use us as your church to boldly proclaim the gospel and to be the humble vessels through which the world around us sees the true grandeur of our God and the invitation of Christ to repent and faithfully follow him. Amen.